0: Good afternoon. I think we'll let the party begin here if everyone will take their seats. I'm Judy Cooper and I coordinate the public programs here at the Pratt and we're very delighted to see you all here this afternoon. I think you're in for a real treat. We're going to be hearing from Alison Kahn and Peggy Fox who collaborated on this beautiful book. Alison Kahn is the author of Listen While I Tell You and she's written for the National Geographic society and the Smithsonian, and she lives in Tacoma Park, and we're very glad you came up here to Baltimore this afternoon. And Peggy is a photographer from Cockeysville. She's uh, a recipient of two Maryland State Arts Council grants and has been won-, won many awards and had uh, a show here at the Baltimore Museum of Art, and they have collaborated on... Um, this wonderful book that is really an addition to, wonderful addition to uh, the history and culture of Maryland and we're going to make sure that we have a signed copy in our Maryland department so I, without any further ado from me, I'll ask you two to come up and tell us this story and show it to us
1: Thank you Judy and thank you all for coming I wanted to just thank the staff at the library, especially Judy Cooper for organizing this and And also designers Jack Young and Debbie White and Dave Terschman and Reggie Harris for their technical support, which is always welcome. And Aaron Kimes at the Maryland Historical Society who helped with promotion. And then, of course, the Maryland Historical Trust, especially Elaine F., and Maryland Traditions and our other donors. It's, It's a real pleasure to bring this book to Baltimore at the mouth of the Patapsco River in the bottom of the valley. It was from here that industry pushed up river and spawned a string of mill villages that became Ellicott City and Oella and Elkridge and, and Daniels and others, and the river set the course of the nation's first railroad and, and, and first national road. It's been an incredible journey for us to get here and also a privilege to have been entrusted with these stories. 12 years ago, Peggy and I first came to the Patapsco Valley We were hired by the Friends of the Patapsco Heritage Greenway and the Maryland Historical Trust to document through oral history interviews and photographs the people of the river towns that would be linked by the greenway. We were originally supposed to document 25 living tradition bearers between Union Dam and Elkridge, which were the endpoints of the of the greenway but we used up our quota just in Oella and Ellicott City because we really hit the mother load there and never got out of town so the project was extended and then we moved on to Elk Ridge and Relay we were strangers to the area we were strangers to each other all we knew was that we were supposed to go out there and get stories and pictures of longtime residents community elders who were disappearing along with the place, the landscape, the traditional community. The idea was to gather in their own words the details, the textures of the past that history doesn't record. And these were the people who were of this this place, whose lives had been shaped by the river which spawned the mills and other industry and other occupations and whose lives were also shaped by the land which gave rise to the to the region's farms, and that strong connection between the place and its people produced a cultural heritage that is now on basically on the endangered list as you know this this area of of Baltimore especially well the counties i'm not i'm not talking about the city so much but the Baltimore and Howard counties has that area has been going undergoing a lot of change and um, New developments have gone up and strip malls and and new roads have consumed the farmland and the population is mushroomed and, and people have come in from the outside who know nothing of this place and nothing of the cultural heritage and basically have no connection to its past. So there's an increasing disconnect between the people who live there and the place in which they live. And this is not unique to the Patapsco. It's certainly happening all over the country. So where do you start? How do you find your way into a place that doesn't exist on the map, the Patapsco Valley that now exists only in memory? Well, you do it by asking a lot of questions and by listening and by serendipity. We were given a handful of names of people to interview in Oella and Ellicott City and also in Elkridge and Relay. And um, beyond that, we were on our own to find the cross-section of the community that we were looking for. And most of them were found by word of mouth. Someone, should, someone would say, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. And then that person would say, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. And it went on like that until we finally um, ended up with about almost 60 people um, and most of them in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then you would hear people say, "Oh, when it was all done, too bad you didn't talk to so and so," which is really annoying to hear when you're all done, because you know they make it sound like, "Oh, you missed the juiciest interview of all." But that's how it is. And oral history is never finished. So we worked independently. I would do the research and find the people and do the interviews, and then Peggy would go and photograph them. And we did it this way because we each needed the intensity of the one-on-one situation in order to do our work effectively. It's when you get into that intense zone that the rich and sometimes difficult and painful stuff, memories, um, bubbles up. So these were one-shot interviews and photo shoots, which means you have one chance to make that connection and gain someone's trust so that they'll open up to you. And that dynamic is more likely to happen when there are just two of you in the room. So I had no idea what Peggy was getting and she had no idea what I was getting, which was very interesting. And, and in the end, it was quite a surprise for each of us to see what the other had done. And for me, it was, it was fascinating to see to see what she came up with in her portraits of the people because they, they often revealed an aspect of people's character that I didn't see because... My my interaction was was basically static. You know, I was sitting there on the couch, and they were sitting there in their chair, and, and that was that was my physical relationship to the people. Whereas hers was much more kinetic and 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 active. So it was it was very interesting to to surprise each other with our findings. So um, we gradually amassed a pile of tapes, transcripts, and photos for the archives. And we thought we were done once we delivered the raw goods. But that was not to be the end of it. This project just wouldn't die. And it sort of took on a life of its own and spun off exhibits and community theater and narrative stages. And, um, and with each spinoff, it became apparent that the whole, the collective body of work was bigger than the sum of its parts. And that compelled us to push a little bit further, and do this book. So Peggy's, Peggy's beautiful photos bring the stories to life, and, and she'll, she'll tell you more about her process in making the images.
2: Welcome, and thank you all for coming. So here we are, a folklorist and a photographer who have never met before asked to document what started out to be 25 old-timers between Union Dam and Elkridge through the photograph and the word in April of 97. It was a perfect summer job. (laughs) A very fine partnership. Um, A little project that grew and grew, as Allie just said. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about how these pictures are made. Now, Allie already talked to you about it, how after a few attempts for us to photograph and do the interviews together, we found out that it was just far too distracting for everyone. So we ended up with Allie doing the interviews, and then we would talk about aspects of their life and their stories. And then I'd decide how I wanted to photograph them, which was sometimes at home, or where they worked, or parts of the towns which were used as backgrounds. So I was looking for settings um, to establish a sense of place. Environmental portraits is what I call them. Like Neil Seibert who was a state's attorney and circuit court judge. I asked him to show, for some reason we didn't, we decided not to photograph him at the courthouse. and So he invited me to his house and He was showing me around, and he was extremely proud of this garden that he had. And he was all dressed up in his suit and his tie and his little shoes. And we went out to the garden, and I said, Well, you don't garden like that, do you? I bet you garden in bare feet. (laughs) And he said, Yes, I do. And he took off his shoes to prove it. (laughs) Um, When I photograph, I, I try to keep people moving. Um... I ask them to move around to keep them from becoming too self-conscious. And, um, and then I try and ask them to sit or stand in different places where I'm considering the locations. And then I'm moving and they're moving and there's this little dance going on. And it's play. I try to think about how they fit into the picture frame and the background. And then I try to get that perfect moment. I take a lot of pictures. Um, Sometimes I worked with an assistant, and for lighting, we used an off-camera flash and an umbrella. This is my assistant. I could move her anywhere I wanted. Um, It was a very flexible light system that gave a beautiful natural light, but most of the time, I used natural light. Um, Of course, I used black-and-white film, and I digitally added the color to give a nostalgic aura to them. And when I wasn't photographing the people, I spent a considerable amount of time walking and driving around, scouting settings and doing the landscapes. After 9-11, everywhere I went, there were flags. The, the cover is a photograph of a church in Relay um, with a flag made from children's handprints. And once when I was trying to figure out how to photograph the railroad and the river together, get some sort of an overview of these two very important um, assets of the area, I decided the best way was to shoot it from the bridge over Route 70. And it was freezing. (laughs) And and there wasn't a very big uh, shoulder on the road, and the trucks were whizzing by. But there was the shot I was glad to get it. Uh, I was going to try and wait for a train to come through but my survival instincts <laughs> prevailed. Um, so I also want to say how amazing this project has been. It's been such a privilege to have had the opportunity to come into people's lives and have them open up and capture their essence in their space. Um, being able to spend significant time engaging with all parts of a community and from that to make a portrait of a place in a time gone by. It's like working a jigsaw puzzle. In trying to put the pieces together, we got a richer perspective of the beauty and value of that time and those people and how their lives were intertwined, as you will see. Um, It also lets us think about the way things have changed for the better. In the lifetime of these folks, raised in small towns, segregation is over, and these places with with a tightly knit community and a rather rigid social order have become more open with the influx of newcomers. I've worked as a freelance commercial photographer for corporate, institutional, and commercial clients, but the documentary work is my favorite and remains the most profound for me. Um, Patapsco was really
1: a labor of love. Thank you. And now we'd like to read you some stories from the people of the Patapscos. A small sign near the shoulder of the interstate between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. says, Patapsco River. You can easily miss it, and for that matter, the river too, if your mind is somewhere else or if you are not from here. But there it is. A sign of place in the peripheral view, a point of reference for both stranger and local. Up here on the highway, time is motion measured in miles. The world streams by, a blur of places bypassed by the fast road and suspended between journey start and end. Between past and future. Places of mind, like the Patapsco Valley, where time is measured in memory. If you happen to belong here to Oella or Ellicott City or Elkridge or Relay or some other town in the River Valley, this is the still point, the center from which your story flows, from which flow all the stories of the people of the Patapsco. Through their stories, they've given us a glimpse of another Patapsco landscape, a place of memory barely visible now beneath that which is present and much changed. Jay Patel, owner of the Country Corner store. The way I
2: got this place, I was coming up the hill from Ellicott City one day with my real estate lady. They were showing me around. The most exciting thing was 2.30 in the afternoon. It was summertime. And the kids were pumping water outside at a pump on the main roadside, and they were taking showers outside, and their mommy was watching them. And I stopped the car, and I said, what's going on in this town? Why, aren't they taking, why are they taking showers outside? So, we don't have no water or sewage here, so this is how we do it for all these years. Then I come up the hill and I find the corner store. I say, okay, this is my kind of location. Reminds me of back home in India. Nice people surrounding country, And I didn't believe that there were such things, that there was no water and sewerage in the United States.
1: If you come from a relatively flat place, topography has a certain allure. It's the thing you notice first about Oella, the sheer verticality of the place. The village, a hodgepodge of old and new, clings like a barnacle colony to the rocks above the Patapsco. It has weathered storms and bust and change, and still it survives, nearly two centuries after Maryland's first chartered textile mill opened for business at this bend in the river. The mill spawned a company town that came to be called Oella. It was, for a brief time, the nation's largest cotton works, and later the largest woolen mill in the South.
2: This is Patience Easton, mill worker. They had a whistle up there. They used to blow about five thirty in the morning, and then about six o'clock. When then, when they had the lunch hour, they'd blow it at twelve thirty, and then one o'clock when you went back to work. But they blew that whistle when the mill burned down. They blew that whistle for about an hour or more because it woke everybody up. Well, I looked out the window and saw that
1: one end of the mill was on fire. It was grim looking. Hazel Wallenhorst, mill worker. We lived here when the first mill burnt down. I was only four. My father came in the house and he told my mother, pack some suitcases, he said, it's bad. And there was snow on the roofs of the houses. My father, he went down to see how bad things were and old Mr. Dickey that owned the whole village and the town, he stood there and cried. And my father said, don't worry about the mill. Let it go and save the houses for the people. The whole town would have gone if we hadn't had snow on the roofs. They said the sparks flew for miles. And this is George Tucker, mill worker.
2: I worked at the mill, worked night times, and in the mornings, in the summertime especially, we would go up to the mill race and take a bath before we went home. We didn't have no bathing suits or nothing. We just went up there when we got off work, 6 o'clock in the morning. We kept soap and all up there at the head gates. We would jump in the race up there, and we'd be down and nothing flat because the race was so swift.
1: Dolores Taylor, mill worker. Catonsville didn't like us because we had outhouses and pumped water. Our kids weren't prepared for the hassle at school, you know, the different attitudes that the kids had. I guess it was kind of rough, you know. They didn't have outhouses over there, but we did. But they weren't a bit cleaner or anything else than we were. Charles Wigand, the
2: president of Oella Company. There's a story. There was a man by the name of Googie W. He and his partner were digging at out the outhouse pits putting the material into a wagon for de- pot, pot, disposal. And while Googie was shoveling away, his coat fell into the outhouse pit. And he started to go in after his coat. And his partner said to him, you're crazy, Googie. What do you think you're doing going in after your coat? You can't use that coat ever again. And Googie replied, "Oh, it's, oh hell, I'm not interested in the coat. My lunch is in the
1: pocket. (laughs) Lydia Harris, Czech collator, domestic, and nanny. I was born right here in Oella. Yes, this was the black part of Oella, from the country corner store on down, mostly blacks live here. And that section of Oella, you know, down there, that's where the mostly white people live at. We weren't even allowed to, to go down there because we would get beaten. And if they came this way, the guys up this way would get them. We used to have to catch the streetcar right behind my house to go to school, Banneker in Catonsville. And that school went from first to the 12th grade. That's where we went to school at. Because that Westchester school up there, that was for the white kids.
2: This is Susan Saunders, nurse's aide and bookkeeper. I went to Westchester Elementary School the first year of integration. The first day was hell. My mother was a very determined woman. So I have a younger brother. He's five years younger than I am. He was going into the first grade, and I was going into the sixth grade. So she held me in one hand, and he in the other. And there we are, the only two blacks, this first day that we went there. And when we got to the door, there were these two Secret Service agents there. It might have been the FBI. I mean, they looked like they were 10 feet tall. Scared the hell out of me. Well, Mother just walked on past them. They opened the door for us, and we went on in. Then I walked to the sixth grade door, and the class was crowded with white kids. And the teacher said, come on in. Everybody got silent. I said, oh, God, I know they're going to kill me. You know, you think all those thoughts, but everyone was just as nice as they could be. Sixth grade, that was the perfect year. But when we went to junior high, I mean, we were called nigger, 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 every day, on the bus mostly, throwing things at us and calling us names. My cousin Ann was the only one that was allowed to fight. My mother says, if you fight, I'm going to beat you when you get back home. So I said, I can't take two whippings. So I was, might as well take one from the kids and let
1: Anne do the rest. And she did. <laughs> when it comes to disasters, you might say that Ellicott City has a flair for the dramatic The place has seen floods and fires of biblical magnitude. It nearly died of insolvency and neglect after World War II. But no matter the damages, Ellicott City always rises from the ruins. Actually, it rises, period. Wedged into a tight valley, the old mill town mounts the flanking ridges like an alpine village. Ellicott City, you know, up there in the mountains, you may still hear them say around the Patapsco. Doris Thompson, editor of the Howard County Times.
2: When I was growing up, Ellicott City was a very vibrant community. It was almost like a little United Nations. We had the Jews, we had the Italians, we had Greeks, Irish, you know, all right there. We didn't know any Republicans But this one girl was in our class at St. Paul's. I should tell you about what the town was really like when I was growing up. The town was just full of beer joints. And these places, they had no indoor plumbing for their customers, so you got an assortment of
1: odors. Russell Moxley, chief of police, Ellicott City in Howard County. Everybody from Howard County come into Ellicott City on Saturday night. They come from Oella. They come from Daniels. They all congregated in Ellicott City on Saturday night. You couldn't walk down the street. There were so many people on it. I would arrest 35 people by myself on Saturday night for being drunk and disorderly on the street. They'd put them all in this big drunk tank. They'd get in a fight. We'd put the hose on them. And we didn't have no trouble after you put the hose on them. But it was the same crowd pretty near every week. Get drunk and somebody would come up and get them out on five, $10 bail. Next week, be the same thing.
2: Bladen Yates, owner of Yates Market. I can remember the police chief. If he caught somebody down at the other end of the town doing something, he'd just send them up to jail. And then he'd call me on the phone because he knew I was here and he'd say, Bladen, so-and-so's coming up the street. See that he goes on up to jail. (laughs) So I'd wait and watch when he'd make that turn. Um, Then he'd either call me back or I'd call him, and I'd say, well, they're on their way up to the jail. I guess 90% of our business was on the phones. If people didn't come in, they just called us. Most people called every week, you know. And in those days, you picked up the phone, and you told the operator what your number was. And if we were busy on the phone lots of times, she would take the order. And then then she'd call and give us the order. It wasn't anything to go into somebody's house, and the door was sitting wide open. Just go right on in and put the groceries in, put the meat in the refrigerator
1: or whatever. We pretty well knew where to put things. (laughs) Wilhelmina Oldfield, teacher and truant officer, and she's the one in the middle. When I went to sign my contract with the superintendent, he said, you may need a club. I can see him now, put his arm out. You may need a club as big as your arm. And I thought, what am I getting into? They milked cows before they came to school. They did farm work, and they were big fellas. They weren't the little kids like you might see around later. Well, the first thing that happened to me was that I had a barrage of spitballs one day. So this is what I came up with. I kept them after school, gave each of them a sheet of paper, and had them make spitballs. I go around, and if it didn't look like a good one, it went in the waste can. Well, they got to the point they were so dry they couldn't make another spitball, and it went to 100. Well, they never made 100, but I never had any more trouble with spitballs.
2: Paul Quarren, owner of Paul's Market. We had a 30-foot awning, red, white, and blue. And of course we had the sign, Paul's Market. And we'd have a Coke machine on the outside. Business got so good, we had a Coke and a Pepsi machine. We specialized in fruit baskets and live rabbits and live chickens. Anything you could get in a cage. We'd put it out... On the stand in front of the store, and we could sell it. I would have contractors that would run into these t- turtles, and they'd either bring them to me alive or dressed. And when I'd open the store up in the morning, I'd look on top of the Coke machine, and the guys would have cages they would have put these things up on top. So when I'd come for work, I'd see what was my day's work ahead of me. Then they'd come
1: around, and of course, I'd pay them for the turtles. How
2: a regular business going.
1: Some places are harder than others to find. Elk Ridge is one of those places. Split in two by Route 1 and sliced by an expressway, the town hangs on a core strip of fast food franchises and gas marts and shopping centers and housing developments. But shift your focus and you just might catch a glimpse of the old Elk Ridge. Trains still pull through town on north-south tracks laid by the B&O, bisecting Main Street and forging a boundary between upper and lower Elkridge. No matter where you stand, the sight and sound of a train seems inevitable, as though one train were continuously circling around and through the town, sounding its melancholy whistle.
2: Scrammy cager, truck driver. The ones that actually made any kind of money back in them days, they worked on the railroad, working on the tracks. They was the ones that could work year-round. See, the people that worked on the railroads, they was somebody. And most of all, down in that section around Race Road, them people worked the railroad, yeah. They were railroad people. They made top money for our people. You worked on the railroad, you was somebody my mother worked up at Lawyer's Hill. See, that's where the aristocrats were. She was a cook. This was the Dobbins and Murrays and Bre- Bowens, used to call them the Blue Bloods, back in them days. That's the way a lot of our people made their living, especially the females over at Lawyer's Hill. You were somebody if you worked for them people.
1: Addison Worthington, engineer. The reason it was called Lawyer's Hill was the early builders there were mostly lawyers. And the people at Lawyers Hill a lot of them looked down on the people of Elkridge even into my time. The people in Elkridge also felt this and I think a lot of them resented it. Felt that the Lawyers Hill people thought they were superior. Most of the kids in elementary school were farmers children. Howard County was a farm county. And many of them didn't get beyond seventh grade until they were at least 16, and then they would all go work on the farm. These were the lower class kids, and Mrs. Dunlop referred to the children as the Hill Kitties and the Village Kitties. We were the Hill Kitties, they were the Village Kitties. As far as I knew, the Catholics had another school. We never had anything to do with them. The blacks, they went somewhere. We don't know where they went. We didn't see them when we were in school.
2: Louise Blackstone, domestic. My uncle raised me, and he worked on a farm down on Lawyer's Hill. In those days, they had what you call the big house and the farmhouse, and the little house is where the farmhouse, the farmhands, lived. Yeah, we lived in the little house, and my uncle worked the farm. My mother and my aunt. They cooked and cleaned up at the big house because those people in those days didn't do anything for themselves. (laughs) Everything was done for them by the black help, and that's the way we lived. We had a nice house, and we never knew we were poor. We always had plenty of love, and it was always well-fed and well-taken care of. I never remembered being real poor. The place was nice. It wasn't. Slavery-like, but it has a slavery mentality if you let it, you know. Well, see, everybody was the same, so we didn't notice it the way we'd done since we've been bigger, get older. We know.
1: It was slave mentality. Mary Pederlich, accountant. My father had wonderful meats, and he delivered to the lawyers' help, lawyers help people who were wealthy aristocrats. I remember going with him when he delivered some of these orders. You'd go in the kitchen, and the cooks, they'd all know you and everything, and they would give you a piece of gingerbread or whatever, and, of course, we loved to go. Well, they had standing orders, and then they had special orders. And I remember that they loved olives. And I didn't like olives, but I thought they were such unusual people and such lovely people, and I thought, if they liked olives... I'm going to make myself like olives. So I ate the olives until I really developed a taste for them. They were big green olives with the seed in it. They'd order a lot of delicacies. They had a lot of parties and things, you know. I've never met people like that in my life. They'd come down to the store with a chauffeur-driven limousine, and I just thought they were absolutely marvelous. I made up my mind I was going for the finer things in life.
2: Louise Blackstone, domestic. They were blue blood, sure enough. Oh, my goodness. They had a cook and a waitress. My mother was the cook and my aunt was the waitress. I worked when I was 17, right down on the corner of Lawyers Hill Road and Montgomery Road in the beautiful White House there on the corner. I worked there seven days a week. I cooked. I took care of two children, served three meals a day. I didn't do the washing and ironing, but I stayed there, I mean, all day, all night, and for $6 a week. Now, if these people had all that money to work, somebody, that many days, that wasn't even a dollar a day. You ever been around those kind of people? They had somebody serve the meal around the table? Oh, yes, honey. All, all was on that table Was on, was the silver. The first trip in, I had to pass all the plates out. And then I'd come with the meat and go from person to person, take that back in the kitchen and come in with the next dish and serve that all around till it was finished. And that's how it was served. Oh, and if they needed something,
1: they had a bell. Our one prop. <laughs> Dorothy Baker, beautician. I opened a beauty shop in 1945, it was the Harwood Beauty Shop. We changed the name when the men started coming. They'd kid each other that I don't tell anybody I go to a beauty shop, you know? So I changed it to the Harwood Hair Studio. When I first started, I had these letterheads printed up and I had across the top, Beauty is your duty, but my obligation. (laughs) I decided afterwards that was a little bit presumptuous. Now, if Jackie Kennedy wore a bouffant with a pillbox, bouffant was it. I think some of them were actually lacquered to death. I don't know if anybody could possibly touch them. It would break first. At one time, Lana Turner had this pompadour and then it come down in a page boy and it was very simple, very easy to keep. And I think from age six to 16 to 60, they wanted that. I don't know if they thought with that look they'd look like Lana Turner or if they just really wanted the hairdo. And remember the Farrah Fawcett flip? Well, a lot of them wanted that when they had a face rounder than mine, and I'd say, I wouldn't dare wear that. My face would be three times as big. I mean, you never say, no, I won't do that, you know, but mean it.
2: Jack Baker, automotive sales serviceman. I lived out on number one highway at what they call the Dead Man's Curve, the Devil's Elbow, they called it. That was on Route 1 when my father opened a garage and a gas station in 1929. It was a terrible curve that came around the number one highway and so many people got killed on it. The bootleggers used to haul whiskey over that highway. Revenue agents used to chase them and if they run off and run down through the woods, then they got killed. The big time gangsters run Route 1. My mother said she could see the blast of the shotguns shooting at one another going by because the cars that the bootleggers had, I seen them myself. You see, what they do, the gas tank was in the back of those old cars and the revenue agents would shoot at the gas tanks naturally. You could see the bullet marks on that sheet of steel that they had hanging down in the back to keep the
1: bullets from going into the gas tank. Willie Amberman clerk, Maryland State Police. One bootlegger by the name of James had a still in the little stream that runs back of our place, and in those days, if you turned them in, you got $50 from the authorities. So his wife would turn them in occasionally, see, to collect the $50. <laughs> Hecht was another one. I used to cut hay on Heck's place, so I knew where his still was. I saw more money on his table than I ever saw in my life. They were bringing money in bushel baskets. I went into the kitchen to get a drink of water, and here are six men sitting around the kitchen table. They were gentlemen personified, all dressed up, you know, ties and business suits. And another man came in with a bushel basket filled with bills, 20s, 50s, 100s, and he dumped them on the center of the table. It had to be thousands of dollars. And they were counting the money, I suppose, dividing it up. Sam Merson,
2: contractor. Living close to the railroad, we had a lot of hobos then running on the trains because it was the Depression. They would be standing there, like maybe six or eight of them. We'd all wave to them, and of course they'd wave back. But a lot of them used to drift to our house for something to eat, and my mother would always give them a cup of coffee and a fried egg sandwich. That was the recipe. But my mother never turned one of them down, although we had meager things for ourselves. And I have read that the hobos, if people would give you something to eat, they'd mark it someplace on a fence or something. And another time, when we were walking one day, there was a hobo. He had a little fire there. And I don't know whether it was a can of beans or something. He had a forked limb that he had this thing hanging on, and he was heating that. And we always thought that was neat, you know? And every once in a while we said, let's make a fire
1: and cook something like a hobo. (laughs) Trains don't stop at Relay anymore, but the village, which climbs from the tracks to a verdant common, survives a Victorian oasis of rampant porches, and tended gardens, and pleasant avenues with arboreal names like Elm and Tulip and Magnolia. For more than a century, the rhythms of life in Relay were calibrated to the comings and goings of trains ever since the first horse-drawn cars stopped here in the 1830s to change teams at the Baltimore and Ohio's Relay Station, which gave the town its name. Today, The white drone of highway traffic, though muted, is constant and pervasive. The few stores have all but disappeared, and people commute to work elsewhere. But still, the patina of the past seems untarnished. Defined by the river, by the railroad which put it on the map, and the highways that took it off, the true place that is relay floats within these boundaries, waits at the end of the bridge.
2: Nelda Ring, secretary. It was kind of isolated. Relay and St. Denis weren't like the Arbutus Hailthorpe community that had the streetcar that had the bus line. You had the local trains coming through and stop, but that was all. There was a definite case system there that existed clear up until we got married in the 40s, and it still exists today. St. Denis was the working area, That was the wrong side of the railroad tracks. They were the laborers. Relay had the more educated people—the lawyers, the judges, the doctors—that kind of professional people—and they kind of looked down their noses at the people who were laborers.
1: Jack Wade, employee Calvert Distillery, and artist. Relay had a great baseball club run by Mister Shakespeare. The Diamond was in Saint Denis on the field down there in the neighborhood and it batted toward the railroad crossing. That was the outfield. It was running in amongst the village because you used to have to put screens up at the windows so the foul balls wouldn't break the windows. We played Sandlot. Later on, we got in the Southwestern County League, and they had certain teams like Savage, Arbutus, Halethorpe, Oella, and Barges Brothers, and we'd have to play them all. Used to play Oella up there in Ellicott City, but used to play up against a big mountain. If they hit to the mountain, they'd have to just rule a double. Oh, man, that was all hometown, the crowd, boy.
2: Harold and Bill Hederman, or Harold Hederman, section chief of Western Electric Company. In those days, we had plenty of ice and snow. I mean plenty. Every winter, we'd sleigh ride down this gun road hill And I'm not kidding. It's the steepest hill in this part of the country. And when you got halfway down that hill, the water was coming out of your eyes. You were going so fast. Mm -hmm. But when you got down this hill, you'd have to make a little bit of a left turn and then a couple of hundred feet. After that left turn, you went over the railroad in a shower of sparks because the steel rails were there, you know. So then you were wound up in Howard County. This was an oyster shell road now, remember, and in those days when they had a hill they would make what they called breakers so that when the water came down it didn't wash the road away. It hit the breaker and went over into a ditch alongside the road. So that breaker was right at that curve. If you weren't on the left-hand side of that road going down that hill in a sled, you wound up over in that ditch because when you hit that breaker at that speed, you were going, you were airborne. And you wound up on the right-hand side of the road, and then you kept on going over the railroad. So it was a ride for life down that hill. I mean, really wonderful.
1: (laughs) The last community we documented, the Mill Village of Daniels, was different from the others in that there's virtually no there there. The place was wiped out by fires and raising and flood, and Daniel's, with its ruins and silence and mystery, became a symbol of the valley's past and its vanishing heritage. So here's a passage from the closing essay. You can easily miss the turnoff for Daniel's Road. It sneaks up like an afterthought amid the crop of new homes spreading over hundreds of bald acres, homogenizing the landscape. Old-timers still call it the Daniel, Daniel's Road, a verbal relic from the days before sprawl when you knew town from country and when a road told you exactly where you were going or where you were coming from, whether Hanover or Hollowfield, Frederick or Sykesville. Like those other old roads, it traces to a simpler, less cluttered map from a time when there were fewer places and fewer ways to get there. It is the lead to a story, a portal into the past. Once, there was a place called Daniel's at the end of this road. Now the road remains, but Daniel's simply isn't there. Gary Memorial United Methodist Church is all that remains intact of Daniel's. The old church still commands the view here on Standfast Hill, an impa- impassive witness to change, a rock of ages. People still come home to this church on Sundays and holidays and reunions and to mark life passages. Even the Daniels Band, one of Maryland's oldest continuously-running town bands, begun in 1879 and still going strong, gathers here to practice. The place that was Daniels may no longer exist, but the community still holds to center. When left to time, nature reclaims place and the trappings of civilization. Not all the signs are subtle. A little Pentecostal chapel stands in ruins covered with graffiti open to the sky. A twisted vehicle rests in a glade flaunting patches of still shiny yellow paint and a spiky chrome ornament. Deeper in the woods, a vintage powder blue station wagon sits amid the trees like a Magritte still life. This is not a junkyard. Why then has no one bothered to remove these objects in ruins? perhaps because they remind that this is not a virgin landscape, but hallowed ground with a human story. These objects, the everyday flotsam and jetsam of past eras, may be out of time, but they are in place. A sculpture garden of tragedy and loss, they are part of the underlying narrative that runs through this junction of river and rock and earth, a narrative that preserves and celebrates the memory and identity of a community. Once, there was a place called Daniel's. So I just, I just wanted to say in closing that um, this, this project, is, it's not about nostalgia. It's not about longing for the past. Change is inevitable, but continuity is not. And if you take it for granted, you risk breaking the chain. And by preserving these individual stories, we're also creating a record of community and culture and place. We're sustaining the cultural heritage that belongs to all of us. We all benefit. We all learn something. We all enhance our connections to our local places, wherever they are, and also our connections to each other, which these days is more important than ever. And that's why I say that the value of this portrait is bigger than the sum of its parts, because as much as it reveals the heritage of Patapsco, the voices and expressions of these elders tap our common humanity beyond the local, beyond this valley. So thank you very much for coming.